Uh, we're continuing today in a teaching series in which we're looking at Christmas through the eyes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or as church history has historically called her, the mother of God. And that title can seem like something of an overstatement, but even as that great early church father, Cyril of Alexandria put it, if our Lord Jesus Christ is God, how is Mary who gave birth to him not the mother of God? And so we consider Mary. Our author Max Licato, he's actually written 25 questions that he hopes one day in the life to come to be able to ask Mary. Here are a few of his questions for Mary. Mary, did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? <laughs> did you ever feel awkward teaching Jesus how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did he ever come home with a black eye? Good question. Mary, did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Good questions. And we have many questions about Mary. You know, as we noted last weekend, we know that different tr Christian traditions view Mary and speak of her in different ways. I think we've all likely heard different ideas about who she was, how she lived. You know, just for example, in some other Christian traditions, like for our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, the teaching is put forward that Mary was actually sinless in her life. And, and Mary's sinlessness is expressed in a teaching that's called the Immaculate Conception. And, and just to be clear about this, because it's often confused, the Catholic Church's teaching of the Immaculate Conception, it's different from the teaching of the virgin birth, which almost all followers of Christ affirm. And again, the virgin birth means that Mary was a virgin when Christ was conceived in her miraculously by God. But the doctrine of Immaculate Conception really isn't about Jesus' conception. In fact, our, our Catholic friend's teaching of the Immaculate Conception says that Mary, by, by grace of God, was immaculate. She was sinless when she was conceived in her mother's womb. So they would say that Mary had no stain of original sin or of actual sin in her life because they would suggest that otherwise Mary would have passed along some kind of stain of original sin to Jesus. Now, it's interesting in this that the great church father, Augustine, who we Protestants often point to, he was also one who taught that Mary was sinless. Okay, but even so, to that teaching, we would say, but that's not taught anywhere in Scripture. Whereas the virgin birth is taught and proclaimed in Scripture. I mean, the Bible doesn't say really anything about the immaculate conception of Mary. The Bible doesn't teach that she was sinless. In fact, it was Mary herself in her beautiful Magnificat in Luke chapter 2 that she said, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. And indicating that she seemed to understand 
that she needed a savior just like every one of us. So we do ask the question, so how are we to view Mary? Well, one point of help in this is Elizabeth. In fact, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, listen to these words. And as we hear these words, remember, this is a word of God. And this is what it says in verse 41. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed to Mary with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so we know then that, like Elizabeth, we're to view Mary as a woman blessed by God. In fact, it'd be fair to say she is the most blessed woman ever. She was the mother of the Messiah of Israel. She was the mother of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so we are rightly to thank God for Mary, to thank God for her faithfulness. Now, on the other hand, we aren't prompted by Scripture to worship her. We aren't told in Scripture to pray to her or through her. But we are without question to look to her as a model of great faith. We are to learn from her, and even in doing that, we are to honor her in that way. And that's what we're seeking to do even in this series. Again, in this series, we are looking at Christmas through Mary's eyes at kind of various points in her life. And we begin, if you remember, we were here with us last week, and we begin with the close of her life, and each week we're moving a bit earlier in her life towards the event of the Christmas birth. And, and again, last weekend we considered Mary approaching the end of her life and asked the question, okay, so as Mary approached her own death, what did Christmas mean to her then? And if you recall, we suggested that Chris, what Christmas meant to Mary as her life came to a close would have been certainly the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the life to come in the presence of God. And for Mary, that included the hope of seeing her son again. And also for us, one of the gifts that we can receive because of that first Christmas is also the gift of the promised resurrection of an everlasting life that Scripture speaks of. Okay, that was last weekend. So now today, we're going to move earlier in time. From the close of Mary's life, we're going to move about 15 years earlier. And so in our text today, Mary isn't 65 years old around there. She's somewhere around 50 years old, likely. And we see her standing beside Jesus at the foot of the cross. And this is what we read. If you turn over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, verse 25 says this. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, now, before we kind of Focus in on Mary here. I just want us to notice two things. For one, you really can't help but notice that at the cross there were four women, and three of them were named Mary. In, in fact, it wasn't only these three here, but if you read the New Testament, there were six or seven other kind of key women named Mary. And you ask, why was Mary such a common name? Well, just to know, it was a common Jewish tradition to name your daughter after Moses' sister in the Old Testament, whose name was Miriam, or the diminutive form, Mary. 
Okay, second thing I want us to note in this verse we just read is that of all the people who could have been there, it was John, we are told later, and four women who were at the cross of Jesus. In other words, at the time of Jesus' greatest trial and need, it was the women who stood with him. And again, we ask, where were the apostles? I mean, where was Andrew, Bartholomew, Peter? Because Peter was the one who said to Jesus, count on me, Jesus, I'll even die with you. They all scattered, except John and these faithful women. And really, just note this, that's really not that surprising if you know Scripture. Because there are faithful women throughout God's Word. And, and I just want to underscore that because sometimes the Bible can kind of get dismissed because they view it as just being a male-dominant book that, in which women are ignored. But I would encourage an individual to, that thinks that way, just say, well, just read this. You'll find it's not true. You'll see even in the Old Testament, there are faithful women throughout the Old Testament. There is Miriam, for example, really one of the great worship leaders in all of Scripture. There is Deborah, this great political leader who is a judge during the time of judges in Israel. There was Abigail, that wife of David, who is described as a woman of wisdom, discretion, and intelligence. There was Esther, who became the queen of Persia, who literally saved the people of Israel. There is Huldah, who is called a prophetess in the Old Testament, where individuals came to her to hear from God. Or you turn to the New Testament, you find the same thing. In fact, do you know who the first Christian convert in all of Europe was? It was a woman. Her name was Lydia. Or you go on, you read the letters, the epistles of Paul, and, and Paul mentions not only men, but women who he calls partners with him in ministry. Women like Priscilla, like Julia, Junia, Yodia, Syntyche. And by the way, if you're looking for a name from Scripture for your daughter, I'd encourage you to skip over Syntyche. Just a suggestion. But of Yodia and Syntyche, Paul says of them, they labored side by side with me in ministry. He called them fellow workers. That's how prominent they were. And just want to make sure, we, we note that from our Jan, John 19 verse. Okay, and... Now let's go back to the cross, to these four women, including the mother of Jesus. And if we try to imagine it, if you stood there by the cross in that day and you looked at Mary, what would you have seen? What would she have been like? Well, first, her speech would have betrayed her, for one, if you talked to her you would have noticed she had an accent from Northern Galilee, which at that day was viewed as being kind of a hick accent. You would have noticed her clothing, which likely would have been that of a poor peasant woman. You would have noticed her face that was betrayed in its line as at being a life of challenge, of toil, and life of poverty and hardship. I mean, she was no longer a teenage girl when she was at the cross. But I don't think those things would have been the most marked qualities of Mary. In fact, I think it would be safe to say from Scripture that, that in addition to her abundant faith, there was a life, just a, 
a great spirit, a clear strength to Mary. In fact, one of the pictures of these traits is actually described three years before Mary stands at the cross of Jesus. And John tells a story in John chapter two. And in John two, many of you know the story, there, there's this wedding celebration. It's at the north end of Galilee in the town of Cana. And Jesus is there, some of his disciples are there, and Mary is there. And this is how it's described. This is in John chapter two and verse one, we read this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, I just want you to catch the beauty of this interaction between a mom and her son in that no request is made by Mary, just an observation. That's all she's doing. Don't know if you notice, my boy. They have no wine. I'm just saying. <laughs> and, and really, you kind of wonder as you read this, okay, so what was she expecting? Because Scripture tells us up to this time, as far as we know, Jesus hadn't performed a miracle. He hadn't performed any kind of at that time, uh, before this moment. And you wonder, what was Mary expecting? And, and you kind of come back to it and think, you know, a mother just knows. Isn't that true, moms? <laughs> Mothers just tend to know these things. Then you read this in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother, ignoring what he had just said, <laughs> said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Just want you to picture I think Mary was this amazing woman. Truly, I think we would have enjoyed being around Mary. And now this woman of just great life and spirit stands at the cross. And just consider that day for her. I mean, her day began well before the cross. We know it was six o'clock in the morning when the high priest had sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be tried for the crime of insurrection, of kind of leading a rebellion against Rome's authority. And we know the Sanhedrin had arrested Jesus in the middle of the night after he'd celebrated the Passover meal, the Last Supper with his followers. And then he'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And we know that Judas Iscariot then led these Roman soldiers there to arrest him. And from there, Jesus was taken to the high priest's home and he was tried there in the middle of the night for the crime of blasphemy, and he was convicted of it. But only the Roman authorities had the power to put a man to death, so some kind of new charges had to be brought against Jesus, charges that would stick in a Roman court. And so they charged him with being a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. And Mary, we imagine stood outside the home of the high priest and waited to see her son and then watched in disbelief as he was led away in shackles. And there she would have walked in the crowd, following behind, hoping perhaps, but also likely knowing that things would not turn out well for her boy. I mean, and we can only imagine what Mary would have felt when Pilate brought Jesus before that great crowd in Jerusalem 
and said to the crowd, what do you want me to do with him? Would it not have taken her breath away to hear this crowd shout in one voice, crucify him? I mean, by 7 a.m., Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to be taught a lesson by the palace guards. So they stripped him naked, they shoved a crown of thorns on his head, they beat him, 40 lashes minus one, leave him barely alive, spit on him, mocked him, took him back to Pilate, and marry their Caesar son, a bloody mess, and humiliated. And then by 8 a.m., Pilate gives the order for Jesus to be taken outside the city walls and to be nailed to a cross and hoisted up to hang this slow, just excruciating death. And just to note, by the way, our English word excruciating literally means out of or from the cross. And there Jesus hangs from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. with Mary likely just a few feet away from her child. And this is what we read back in John 19. Again, verse 25. And standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, took Mary to his own home. I mean, we miss this, but it truly, it's amazing, really. In fact, the British preacher, A.W. Pink, put it this way. It is amazing that Jesus, in that kind of agonizing suffering, engaged in the most momentous, the most stupendous undertaking that this earth ever has or ever will witness, that even so, he still makes provision for his mom. And those phrases that Jesus uses here, behold your son, behold your mother, you, you need to know those are from ancient Jewish family law. So on the cross there, Jesus with and an inability almost to breathe, he still utters those formal words to make certain he is giving his mother into the custody of John. And, and we ask the question, why John? I mean, why not entrust Mary to one of Jesus' half-brothers? Well, for one, John was there. But also, it would seem, it was because Jesus' half-brothers, at this point at least, didn't believe he was Savior. In, in fact, they thought he was crazy. So on this, Jesus apparently believed, it is more important for you to be with one who follows me, mom, than even with your own family. I mean, I, I just want to make sure we catch what Jesus is saying here. I, he is saying, people who believe in me, people who are in Christ, have a stronger bond than they do with members of their own blood family. So imagine mothers looking up there and seeing your son hanging on the cross. I mean, how unspeakably crushing that must have been. And if anyone knew of the perfection of Jesus, it was Mary. I mean, she knew her child never sinned. She knew he never did anything wrong. 
I mean, in that way, we could say it must not have been easy being a sibling of Jesus. I mean, you wonder if Mary ever said to her other children, so as you walk through your day, just ask, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Maybe it all started with Mary. And here was that perfection being crucified. So what do you think Mary was thinking about as she just helplessly stood at the cross during those six hours? You know, I'd suggest that at some point she was thinking about Christmas. I think she was thinking of Christmas because only Christmas would have helped her make sense of what she was seeing before her. Only Christmas would have given her some sense that there was meaning in this horrific tragedy. Only Christmas. Because she could have remembered, even at the cross, that she had been told by the angel Gabriel, make sure you name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. She would have remembered these shepherds rushing in towards Jesus' manger and, and telling her that angels had told them, a, a child is born who is a savior. He's Christ the Lord. So she stood at the cross. Did she think, okay, is this how all that will come about? Could this be what Gabriel meant? I mean, she would have remembered at the cross how she and Joseph had been taking their newborn Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to offer that offering that was required for a newborn child. And we know that at the temple, there was an elderly man named Simeon there who approached him, looked at Jesus and said, now I can depart this life in peace, O God, because I've seen with my eyes your salvation. Here he is right here. And then it says that Simeon took Jesus into his feeble arms, looked upon Jesus and said, Luke 2, 34, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he looked at Mary and he said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So you wonder, how many times over the years did Mary wonder, how is this child going to bring opposition? He's perfect. He's obedient. He's courageous. He's gracious. How many times would she have wondered, how is a sword going to pierce my soul? But now at the cross, with a soul-wrenching grief, she finally could understand Simeon's words from 33 years before. I mean, I would imagine that as she watched those soldiers lift wine up to Jesus on the cross, wine that we are told was mingled with myrrh, would she not have remembered these magi who had come sometime after Jesus was born, bringing these gifts from afar and bringing to Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh? <laughs> what an odd gift for a child, myrrh? 
Because myrrh at that time, it was used to make an anointing oil that for one, was used in the temple in Jerusalem to anoint all that was sacred in the temple. And its other use, it was used to embalm the dead. What an odd gift for a child. Why did these magi give my son myrrh? Do you think she was thinking of these things? as she stood at the foot of the cross. Friends, it is so important for us to understand that Christmas and Calvary go hand in hand. Christmas and the cross are inseparable. That's the reality. And because what we celebrate in December 25, in the birth of Jesus, is the birth of a savior who came to save us from our sins. In fact, that's why we celebrate. That's why we come. That's part of the gift of Christmas. This overwhelming gift of Christmas is the gift of a son. It is the gift of salvation, of new life to us. And so even at Christmas, even in the season, we remember that, we celebrate that, and we recognize the price that was paid. And the price that was paid for this salvation was the death of Jesus. And even at the cross, Mary saw her son, saw Jesus offering this eternal life to others, even at the cross. And we're told that at the cross, there were two common criminals crucified on either side of Jesus when Jesus hung on his cross. And, and one of them cried out to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember those words Jesus said to him? I mean, there's Jesus. He's dying on the cross in excruciating pain. And actually, the physical pain he's experiencing is just a shadow of the incredible spiritual darkness that's being laid upon him. But even so, in that moment, Mary hears his, her son say to this criminal, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Only Christmas helps us make sense of the death of Christ. I'm truly, friends, only the cross fully explains the meaning of what took place at Christmas. Because Christmas and the cross go hand in hand. And on that cross, there's Jesus. He's offering himself. He's taking on himself the judgment, the guilt, the shame of our sins in the hope of reconciling you to God, your Father. He came to save you and me because there's no way on our own we can save ourselves. And that's what Christmas means. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, he explains it this way. In, in Romans 5, listen to Paul's words. In, in verse 1, he writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, the cross of Christ, it truly, it points us to the brokenness of humankind. Which is our brokenness. It's our fallenness. But it also demonstrates to us the incredible magnitude 
of God's love for us. And the cross offers us peace with God, this eternal salvation, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's why, that's why it was incredible news. It was good news of such great joy that unto you is born this day in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem, a savior, finally, and he is Christ. He's the Lord. And this is the great gift of Christmas. And that's why we also come, even in this season, to this table. We come to this table and remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed with his followers at a Passover meal, breaking bread and saying to them, this is my body given for you. They had no clue what he meant. But likewise, he took the cup, the wine, at the meal. He lifted it towards them and said, this is my blood. And it's the blood of a new covenant, a new agreement in me. My life is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And still they didn't understand. But today, in this Advent season, by God's grace, we can understand. We can, by his grace, come and receive from Jesus. And so if you're here today, and if your heart is for Jesus, maybe this is even for the first time, I invite you as we pass the bread to take a piece and likewise with a cup until we can receive it together. Because he still offers us life. Amen? Let me pray and then then we'll come to the table. Will you pray with me? And so friends, even now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I mean, whether you're at Mosaic or on the internet or here in this room, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond, an opportunity to receive this gift from Jesus. Because I want you to know, everything that Jesus brought at Bethlehem and Calvary is for you. So if you today, if you know that you need to be saved from your brokenness, from your fallenness, your sin, I I just invite you right now, if you want to accept the Savior, accept this gift that Jesus offers to you, you can do that right now. And I'll, I'll just lead you in a prayer. And I'll, I'll express a phrase, and then you can just silently repeat it after me. It's kind of your own prayer to God, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Okay, so if this is your heart, just repeat these words silently after me as your prayer. And Jesus Christ, I trust in you. Save me. Save me from myself, from my sin. Wash me clean, make me new. I recognize the cost of this salvation. And in response, I pledge my life to you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit to empower me as I follow you. And use me to bring you glory in this life I live. Oh, Father, how great the salvation you offer to us. 
And even now, as we come to this table, I, I pray you would open our minds, our hearts to him. Thank you for the grace you've extended to us, the wonder of what you offer us. And so we come in faith now, praying we'd be prompted in remembering the extent of what Christ did for us. And also in this, feed us, we pray, in this meal. In Jesus' name we ask it, and again, all God's people say, Amen.